The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Dr. Kent Moores, who is an internationally recognized expert in oil and gas policy. He is also a professor at the uh, Department of Political Science at Duquesne University. Uh, and he's also the author of a new book called The Vega Factor, Oil Volatility and the Next Global Crisis. Welcome to the show, Kent. Well, thank you very much. Nice to be with you. Um, let's just start off with uh, Vega. This is a word that most people are not particularly familiar with. And why don't you explain the concept of Vega and how that kind of ties into uh, what people should be concerned about in the oil markets today? Sure. Uh, to begin with, it, it's the phrase I use, oil vague is the phrase I use to talk about the rising inability uh, to determine the genuine value of crude oil based on its market price. And I actually borrow the concept from options traders. If someone is involved in, in trading options, uh, they, well know, uh, they know quite well that vega is the concept or the uh, factor in which a change in the option value is based on a change in the underlying implied volatility uh, of, of the commodity it's an option on. And basically, what this vega means is there's a rising instability that's taking place. There's a rising volatility that's moving into the oil market. And that volatility is making it more difficult for us to determine what the actual correct price is of the oil. Uh, it's making the normal, traditional things we look at to determine oil price, such as supply and demand or um, currency exchange rates, uh, inventories, even geopolitical events. It makes it more difficult for us to equate how those are translating into changes in oil prices uh, because of the volatility in the trading itself. This oil vega takes place inside oil trading. It is not something from the outside. It isn't simply because a bunch of speculators decided to control the market or whatever. This is built into the way in which we trade oil, uh, the oil being both a financial asset in its own right and a commodity to be exchanged. Uh, and this situation, augmented by the volatility, is simply getting worse. So this whole thing is what I talk about uh, when, when I use the term oil vega. Uh, it's this, this uh, whole constellation of factors. And one of the things we see that it's doing is simply making it more difficult for the traders themselves to determine their options. And if they can't determine their options on future contracts, they have no real guarantee that they have uh, provided sufficient risk insurance for their move. So in a general, by having a higher vega, it raises oil prices because there's more risk in being able to price the oil in the first place. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. Absolutely. And people have to remember this goes in both directions. Until recently, if you talked about volatility in the oil market, most people assumed you were simply talking about prices going higher. But as we well know in the last week, plenty of people get their fingers burned by the prices going down quickly. So right now, you have oil at roughly $100 a barrel or thereabouts. Uh, if, oil, if, if you did not have this volatility on purely, I don't know if it's possible, but on purely supply and demand, where do you think oil prices would be today if there, there weren't this extra volatility? I think currently, over the last month, uh, if we take the volatility out, the price would actually be marginally higher. I think the price would be about 105 to 107, maybe 108 dollars a barrel, uh, because the volatility currently is pushing the entire dynamic down, rather than the traditional thing we think about. With when volatility comes in, it tends to push prices higher. We're having a a very constrained example of what occurred over a wider period of time between September 2008 and essentially the early summer of 2009. Uh, a, a distinct movement down, but that movement is being accentuated by the great unknown caused by this volatility. 
And when one cannot correctly peg, the number of people who had to wind down option positions very quickly um, in that period between uh, April 29th and March 6th, the five sessions in which we lost 15% of, of the value of, of crude oil, uh, is a good testament that the, the uh, traders themselves have lost the ability to set those option prices sufficiently to gain any kind of really a real uh, uh, risk avoidance in their in their uh, future contract uh, positions. Now, some would say that the uh, futures markets raised margin requirements because they were worried there was too much speculation in the markets, not only oil, but gold and silver and all kinds of other commodities as well. And that's what kind of uh, led to that uh, sharp sell-off. Is that is there anything to that? Well, there, there is something to say to that, except you have to remember, with regard to crude oil, something else is happening. Uh, and I actually see it as one of the more serious uh, difficulties for regulators moving forward. A number of these futures contracts are, are actually moving off the market. And they're moving off the market because they're structured, uh, especially the options portion of this, is structured more to look like a credit default, sweat, uh, credit default spread. See, CFTC doesn't regulate credit default spreads. And if it's actually a credit move, it really has to be structured in a way that is of primary use to the counterparties on that transaction. So those things ought to be off the market. The problem is more of what traditionally had been termed futures oil contracts are now structured in such a way that they're being traded uh, OTM rather than being traded on the exchange. And that tends to accentuate the difficulties of the market. Uh, it also accentuates something else, Jordan, which is, a, which is a real serious problem moving in. And that is we're beginning to see the rise in the use of synthetic derivatives to make these uh, square holes and round pegs fit. That's a good indication of two things. First off, more of this trade is actually moving off the market. And secondly, the traders themselves have actual uh, less confidence that the traditional way of uh, making the uh, paper barrels, the future contracts, and the wet barrels, the actual consignments fit at the time of expiration are actually working. So there's more speculative demand than there is actual physical oil to deliver. Could that create a crunch at some point? Well, it could, except you have to remember that the crude oil itself is now a financial asset in its own right. And I tell people, right now there's at least three to three and a half times the uh, futures contract value as there is the actual wet barrels or crude oil consignments in the market. And that does concern people unless you parallel it to to credit markets, for example, in which case on any given day the amount of credit that's available in the market um, is uh, considerably greater than the amount of assets that are actually being exchanged. Uh, this distinction is actually the way in which the liquidity comes in and is maintained in the market. So the, the excessive amount or the amount of, of futures contracts that actually exceed the amount of oil uh, is not as significant a factor as people might think. You talk in your book about uh, kind of what happened with the housing collapse and the mortgage debacle, uh, a lot of that relating to synthetic uh, credit default swaps being created. Are you saying that that's a, there's a parallel situation as things got out of hand there, it's taking too much risk, leveraging or leveraging, that the same thing is happening now in the oil markets? Yes, yes. And actually it's a moral hazard. Because and, and of course the subprime mortgage, uh, the synthetic derivatives that were introduced in the subprime mortgage market were a prime example of, of moral hazard, in which people were structuring packages of synthetic uh, derivatives or synthetic debt to maintain uh, to generate profit off of those packages rather than valuing the actual underlying um, assets. In this case, the mortgages. And so as a result, to bundle and move out as quickly as possible became the order of the day. That was serious enough. Once that budget bubble hit, it had an adverse impact on dollar-denominated assets held globally. What I suggest in the book is we're beginning to see the same structure of synthetic derivatives and synthetic debt taking place in the oil futures market. That will have a far bigger impact because of the far more endemic position of energy uh, in markets worldwide. Okay, we're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Dr. Kent Moores. 
Uh, he is a professor of political science uh, at Duquesne University and the author of a new book called The Vega Factor, Oil Volatility and the Next Global Crisis. We'll be back after this. Up-to-date business and financial news. Call now and get the financial information you need. 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. The experts are here. Voice America Business Network. Are you ready to go green? You've asked and we've heard you. Voice America presents the Green Talk Network. Environmental topics are at the forefront of our society, and the Green Talk Network is here to keep you up to date on the latest trends and new innovations for the eco-conscious lifestyle. We'll help promote a variety of ideas on the environment, from global warming issues to how you can become more eco-friendly in your daily activities. Be a part of the solution, not the problem. Visit the Green Talk Network page on voiceamerica.com and tune in to help spread the green. If you lead a team of any kind, you need to listen to this show. Tune in to Leading with Emotional Intelligence, hosted by Esther Orioli. Esther provides you with the tools and techniques you need to harness the power of EQ to stop setting goals and start changing behaviors in your organization. Get the latest concepts in EQ from a top-of-the-house perspective and have your questions answered on air. Leading with Emotional Intelligence is broadcast live every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Income Property Investment Talk with Peter L. Mosca provides those of you eager to invest well in real estate with the knowledge, resources, and tools necessary to generate significant wealth. Our focus is to help you maximize your real estate investment dollars. Listen live to the brightest minds in investment real estate every Wednesday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. That's Income Property Investment Talk with Peter L. Mosca, where America learns to invest. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Dr. Kent Moores, who is an oil expert. Uh, He's a professor of political science at Duquesne University. Uh, he is the uh, author of a new book called The Vega Factor, Oil Volatility and the Next Global Crisis. Uh, he also writes for Money Map Publications on Energy and Oil. Welcome back to the show, Kent. Thank you, George. Uh, I just want to expand it a little bit further, uh, kind of the parallel between what happened with the housing and the mortgage and the subprime market and uh, what you think might be happening in the future with the oil market based on what we've just been talking about, the credit default swaps and so on. All right. So what is, what is the path that you would see going forward here? Uh, now that we've seen what happened in the mortgage market, how could things develop, and uh, what would be the implications of that in the oil market? Essentially, we ended up having the problem in the subprime market because people were emphasizing generating profit off the transfer of the mortgages rather than the processing of the mortgages themselves. We've always technically had this sort of problem in the uh, oil futures market for the simple reason that the bulk of liquidity coming in and the, the majority of people who participate are speculators to the extent that they wish to arrive at a financial profit off the contract rather than hedging the actual commodity. In other words, they're not producers of the commodity, they're not end users of the commodity, they're people that are primarily making a financial profit off the transfer of the futures contract. Whenever that takes place, since futures themselves and options based on those futures are themselves derivatives, you always run the uh, potential of setting up uh, new intermediary derivatives that allow you to move the uh, contracts themselves and the options based on them uh, a bit easier. With the case of oil, uh, we have another difficulty since it is both a financial asset and it is a commodity. Right now, we have very exotic options that are being used for the purpose of attempting to create uh, or provide some risk insurance on the futures contracts themselves. 
some of these exotic options themselves look like synthetic derivatives. So the, the actual distinction between what is a normally used option on crude oil versus what is a genuine synthetic derivative is becoming more and more difficult uh, to determine. The reason why the synthetics are becoming more and more noticeable is because in order for a major speculation in the market to continue, a greater number of holdings have to be, have to be held at any given time. At that point, you get into what looks like credit default swaps or their equivalent, and you're well on the way to setting up boutique derivatives to represent what it is that these holdings actually convey. At a certain point, the derivatives themselves become the paper that's exchanged, and their actual value is extremely difficult to determine. And that's essentially what we had in the subprime mortgage crisis once it completely unfolded. So regulators are seeing this and are, are very worried about this. And in fact, I think even today, uh, Treasury Secretary Geithner was uh, talking about um, creating worldwide regulation for derivatives. Uh, would that help or hurt the situation? It depends on how it's structured. Uh, in the book, I explain that most of what government will be doing here probably will make the problem worse uh, because they're going to be going after speculation, they're, uh, speculators. Uh, they're going to attempt to move more of this market toward one that's controlled by those who are hedging the actual underlying consignment of oil, the real wet barrels rather than those who are going in the market for the purpose of advancing profit off of the paper barrels or the future contracts. Here's the problem. By doing that, we significantly truncate the, the, the liquidity that comes into the market. If I'm going to do a deal, I need somebody on the other side of the deal that's prepared to take a financial risk, not someone who's prepared to take a commodity risk, but somebody who's prepared to take a financial risk. That is the essence of speculation. If we begin heavily regulating the ability of this liquidity to move in the market, the trading itself will move someplace else. For the U.S. market, that's a double whammy. We currently are dependent on the rest of the world for upwards to two-thirds of the crude oil that we use every day. If the future trading in that crude oil we need is also moved someplace else, then we've lost control over that as well. There are some things that regulators can do. Um, we see margins being changed. Uh, that clearly is something the CFTC can do. We're also seeing structures uh, such as preventing uh, certain market makers from having too many contracts on both sides. That's another element of speculation. I need somebody who's prepared to both buy and to sell futures contracts and that's a financial situation. That's not a commodity situation. Those, I think, can also be improved. The primary situation here is to move what are genuinely future contract trading from off the market onto exchanges where it can be regulated. Here, there is a certain amount of leverage that can be done by the regulators in the U.S. They clearly need to have a support in principle from regulators on other exchanges. Uh, we, may, we may need a, a, a basal approach uh, to the regulating of, of future contracts. There's a considerable amount of work that needs to be done there because there are exchanges such as Dubai and Singapore that are beginning to make an additional amount of trading profit off of contracts that used to be traded primarily in New York and London. So there are some advantages to other exchanges in actually not coming on board uh, in, in an international global approach. I mean, let's face it, uh, there are a number of people who have been attempting to control the um, uh, futures contracts in currency ever since, uh, you know, George just about brought the U.K. to its knees back in the early 1970s, and we haven't gotten very far on that either. When you, the, the common political perception is when oil prices go up, when oil prices go over $100 a barrel, blame the speculators. You know, they are, it's all these people profiting off us, the little people, and it's the big oil companies and the speculators that are you know, profiting off of the, the sweat of the brow of the little person. What, what is wrong with that picture? Well, if we suddenly jump up to 150 bucks, somebody's found something in the market. 
Um, and so then, you know, people can say the speculators have created certain problems. But, but let's see what's actually happening here. This market, almost from the beginning of establishing futures in both crude oil and oil products back in the 1980s, has practiced arbitrage. Toward the end, as you're getting to the expiration of the futures contract, if there is a pronounced difference between the price of the oil on the futures contract and the price of the actual oil on the spot market, then people start arbitraging and, and the, you know, they buy one and they sell the other. And that normally has been the market, and until recently it's worked fine. The problem here is that has been, especially over the last 18 months, as traders are less able to determine what the genuine price is for that option they need to provide them risk insurance, they then have to come up with a whole series of, of uh, options that they have to do. They have to hold uh, a larger amount of paper in a shorter period of time to get the same sort of uh, risk insurance that they used to get earlier. And that isn't working as well. It also tends to weight the market one way or another so that if you're going down or if you're going up in any given period, it tends to accentuate the difference. And it tends to expand the price of the futures contracts beyond or below what is really justified by the price of, of the consignment of the oil itself. That's a situation that's more dealing uh, with the overall nature of trading rather than somebody actually trying to uh, play a game and through a situation, you know, attempting to make an unjustified profit. Jordan, I'll tell you what happens if we make it more difficult to do the future trading. Mm -hmm. uh, there are some attempts inside the Beltway. Uh, there are several pieces of legislation that are currently pending that essentially would not allow significant involvement in future contracts unless, number one, you also had a similar position in the actual consignment of oil, and number two, you already had a relationship with the counterparty prior to entering into the futures contract. Those are the two elements that we see most often moving into an election year that people, uh, that politicians are using for the purpose of, of trying to blame this on, uh, blame this on speculators. If you move out the futures contract, you are left with the price of oil being determined by those parties that are actually hedging the commodity. These are the people who, who produce the product. These are the primary end users who need it. Uh, as you go from upstream to downstream, you first of all have those who extract from the field being the producer and the end user being the refinery. As you start getting closer to the, to the retail side, the producer becomes the refinery and the end user is actually the distributor or the retailer. So as a result, you only have a few parties here that actually would participate in the, uh, in the pricing. We will end up having the same situation we had in the 1970s prior to the introduction of the futures market. And in the 1970s, it was still the great seven sisters deciding international prices, seven huge international companies. The problem is that this time around, we will have a number, a small number of large international companies, but they're not going to be private companies. The top 12 in the world, the top 12 producers in the world are all state-run national companies, and they all have direct connection to a sovereign wealth fund. This is a far different situation. If you allow the hedgers to determine the price, we will have the Saudi Aramco's and the National Iranian Oil Company and PDVSA out of Venezuela actually determining the international price and, when necessary, being able to buttress that position by using their own national sovereign welfare uh, the wealth funds. So we're, by eliminating speculation, what we do is we don't eliminate this liquidity coming in for a profit. We simply limit the number of people allowed to do it. And we, oh, we move the price higher, lose less control over oil prices if it's controlled by these national oil companies all over the world, you're saying? Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Now, if you take a look at what occurs in OPEC, we for years now have had a difference of opinion. Uh, you have the Saudis that don't want to have the price pushed too high, and we have the Iraqis and the Venezuelans that would love to push it over $100. If the international pricing is actually put into that beehive, we're no better off. Indeed. Okay, we're going to take another break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Dr. Kent Moores. His new book is called The Vega Factor, Oil Volatility and the Next Global Crisis. 
He's also a professor of political science at Duquesne University in Pittsburgh. We'll be back after this. the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Patricia Raskin, the host of Positive Living on VoiceAmerica.com, Monday at 11 Pacific. This program brings you practical and inspiring principles for living a more authentic, engaging, and passionate life. Patricia's guests will give you a formula for connecting, giving, forgiving, and miraculous living. So tune in and call to Positive Living, Mondays at 11 Pacific time, right here on VoiceAmerica.com. When you are trying to establish your financial plan, there are all sorts of variables that you'll need to take into consideration, from the ever-changing economy and markets to investment risk and your own financial needs. How do you manage all of it to find a plan that will work for you? Tune in to The Insightful Investor with Bob Pugh. We'll help you iron it all out to help you stick to a financial plan with the knowledge that you need. The Insightful Investor is broadcast live Mondays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 7 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Leadership is a vital skill set in today's competitive global economy. Being a leader is not enough. To succeed, you must optimize your performance and know how to imbue others in your organization with leadership skills. Practical, actionable leadership insights are the focus of Leadership Development News, hosted each Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, by Kathy Greenberg and Relly Nadler on the Voice America Business Channel. Doctors Greenberg and Nadler, who coach global leaders on how to be most effective, will share their insights and contacts. The path to leadership excellence begins here. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Dr. Kent Moores. Uh, He is a professor of political science at Duquesne University in Pittsburgh. Uh, He is also the author of a new book called The Vega Factor, Oil Volatility and the Next Global Crisis. Kent, let's just take a look at the general view on the energy markets and so on. Uh, There's a lot of uh, scary talk out there that we're running out of oil. The the peak oil theory and that we found all that we can find and it's going to be declining. And meanwhile, demand is going to be going up, particularly from the third world, and we're going to have two and three and four hundred dollar oil until we run out of it and then the world will collapse. I mean, that's the kind of the general sense you get. What is your kind of long-term view for oil prices and, and supply and demand? Well, if we were having, Jordan, if we were having this conversation three years ago, I might have, I might have been a stronger supporter of, of uh, peak oil than I am now. Uh, the position, I think, is pretty clear. We have plenty of supply worldwide. So the basic tenet of peak oil that at some point we're going to use more than 50% of the available oil, um, I think is becoming less and less a likelihood. Here's the caveat. There's plenty of oil out there, but the oil we're bringing into the market is of inferior quality. It is higher sulfur content. It is more. Uh, it has higher viscosity. Uh, it has pressure difficulties. It is heavier oil. It is oil that requires a greater amount of processing. Uh, it is oil that really, in some cases, with the heavy oil or the bitumen or the oil sands, has to be set, uh, has to be put into uh, synthetic oil, which is more expensive to operate. So the end result is there's oil out there, but it's more expensive to extract, process, and transport than we've known in the past. That means the supplies there. If the demand requires it, it's going to be available, but the price is going to be higher. There's no doubt about that. The few places left we have for light, sweet, crude are unfortunately places like Libya and Nigeria, not known for their political stability. Many of the new fields that we're finding are smaller. They have geological difficulties associated with them. 
They are located in places that require a considerable amount of capital expenditure for new infrastructure. They're in areas that have economic and political difficulties. My current estimate is that the truly huge fields we haven't found yet worldwide, of those fields, easily 75% of them are going to be found in deep water. So we're back into the situation of of drilling in 800 to 1,200 feet or more of water, which, of course, is even more expensive than doing it on, uh, on land. So the, the first answer is the supply situation is a bit more complicated than, than uh, peak oil has told us in the past. It's there, but it is more expensive. The second component of that is demand. And here we're seeing a considerable increase in demand outside of the United States and Western Europe. We still think of the U.S. and Western European demand as determining this market, and it really hasn't for quite some time. I mean, people recognize that the uh, that China and India and a resurgence of industry in East Asia is having an impact on demand, and that that demand clearly is not established Western demand. Uh, but there are two other factors here in demand that people have not yet adequately recognized. One is that the primary producers in the world are actually beginning to withhold more of their crude oil from the global market so that they can process it and sell it for value-added oil product uh, on, uh, in the international markets. So it's no longer simply Saudi Arabia producing a lot of crude oil and simply sending the raw material out into the market. They spent billions of dollars to begin developing their own petrochemical facilities. Those petrochemical facilities are there for the purpose of Saudi oil products entering into the market. Russians are doing the same thing. I mean, I started in Russia. Uh, the Russians decided to do the right thing at absolutely the wrong time. They have 49 refineries, 42 of which cannot currently produce gasoline at a Euro 3 standard or higher. In other words, they can't produce high-octane gasoline. So, they, so what they decided to do was to force their refineries to start upgrading by making it more expensive for crude oil and for current low-level oil products to be sold on the international market. They did this beginning uh, in August and September of 2008. So they cut off the crude oil supply that they relied upon for their budget right at the time when the price collapsed. Um, so they got hit with a double whammy. The Russians, however, while they're providing crude oil into the market, are, are beginning to withhold most of that so their own refineries can actually begin distilling it. So that's the second one. The third one is we have regions of the world that nobody think of that are absolutely exploding in terms of demand. If I were to ask you what area of the world, what region of the world uh, is, the, is the global leader now in terms of increases uh, for oil product, we'd sit here for quite some time and talk about regions until we finally got it. This I'd probably region, say the Middle East. No, it's West Africa. I say West and Africa. And nobody thinks of West Africa. Uh-huh. I mean, anybody who thinks of West Africa at all says, well, wait a minute, you got Nigeria there. Nigeria produces a considerable amount of crude oil and exports it. The answer is yes, but they have very low refinery capacity. On any given day, they produce only 15% of the electricity that the country as a whole needs. 85% of that is generated on private generators. They run on diesel, and all of that diesel has to be imported into Nigeria. So we have, we have a situation, um, I was in Africa for a while, I was in Uganda, for example, uh, advising the government about six months ago, and we, we see a different sort of cycle that's taking place in Africa in which the demand for oil products is, is, is exploding. That's the basis of any sort of industrial or economic expansion, and you no longer can do what it is the American market always assumed that the developing countries would do. And that is if the price of oil products and oil or oil products got too high, we simply assumed that their government would sit on their own economy, suppress the demand, and then we wouldn't have to do anything about it. Well, two things happened. Number one, the value of the dollar is down. So the inflationary impact, for example, in places like China is less acute than it would have been several years ago. And secondly, these developing countries cannot cut 
their crude oil supply or their oil product demand without shooting themselves in the foot. They now need this to sustain a continuing industrial expansion. And with that case, they're prepared to pay more, which means our prices go up. This is an international market, whether people want to accept it or not. Every time somebody says, look, we've got enough oil in the United States, why don't we simply develop it and not even worry about the rest of the world? Uh, somebody who says that doesn't have the faintest idea of what this market looks like. Not only are we re- dependent upon the rest of the world for two-thirds of our crude oil, we are importing more oil products than we ever have. We import gasoline. We import diesel because we can't produce enough of diesel for our own domestic needs. We're, producing high, we're importing high-end kerosene, which is jet fuel. We even, in certain cases, have to import low-sulfur heating oil during the winter. So if something happens anywhere else in the world that's going to have an impact on American prices, regardless of, of how um, independent we think the American economy may be. What are the security implications of, of that increased uh, dependence on imports of all different kinds of oil products? Yeah, that's, that's, that's a great question, Jordan. And that's the essential trade-off. People get confused when they start discussing the issue. If we're talking essentially about national security, we don't care what it costs us. On the other hand, if we're talking about oil and oil products as the energy base for an economy, then we're primarily interested in what it costs us. We do have a fair amount of oil left in the United States we can develop, but we're only going to be able to develop that at a great level, at a high level, if we're prepared to pay regularly upwards to $5 a gallon at the pump. And this economy cannot sustain it. The American economy was built on the availability of cheap energy. started with timber, moved to coal. Until the early 1970s, we provided crude oil to the rest of the world. So for the first time, we're in a situation where we have to look at maintaining economic expansion to get us out of what is still a depressionary situation or a recessionary situation in the United States. But we're doing it with the distinct prospect that the energy component's price will continue to go up. Uh, some would say that we're being um, insulated, I guess would be the right word, by the dollar being the world reserve currency and oil priced in dollars. And because all the holders of dollars, the Chinese, the Japanese, the Brazilians, everybody else, is unhappy with the decline of the dollar, that they're looking for some kind of a basket of currencies or some kind of alternative to the dollar of the world reserve currency. If that were to happen, what would the, be the impact on oil prices and other commodity prices for Americans? Oh, I think it would, it would appreciate even higher. We have an advantage, but that's not likely to happen, at least not for the next decade, maybe two decades. There simply is too much in the way of dollar-denominated assets worldwide that even if nations wish to get off of the dollar standard for oil exchanges, they would be able to do that only by significantly jeopardizing the assets they currently hold. And so as a result, there's a lot of frustration out there that is uh, directed against the U.S., but there's not a heck of a lot that can be done about it. The U.S. continues to get a, a specific advantage. It's called seniorage, and that's the advantage whenever someone else has to use your currency. To the extent that dollar, the dollar remains as the denominating currency for the vast, vast majority of, of oil and gas transactions worldwide, that requires a considerable amount of dollars be held in reserve in foreign banks to continue these transactions. The advantage is it's almost like an interest-free loan to the U.S. economy. We can print additional money. We can export it abroad. So long as that currency does not return into the American market and circulate, it isn't inflationary. So this whole structure in the way in which uh, oil is uh, denominated is a primary benefit. No nation would be able to sustain the balance of payments deficits we have month after month without significant inflation unless they were benefiting from this, uh, this kind of seniorage. And that's the advantage the U.S. has. Now, nobody else out there, forget about the political rhetoric, nobody else out there currently wants to be the reserve currency. Mm-hmm. The, the, even the Chinese don't want the yuan to be the reserve currency. And the euro benefits from the fact that it actually is, uh, the dollar is trading at a discount to the euro. 
you have when you look at at the overall prices of oil and oil products you really have to look at two different kinds of prices the first one is what does it cost to get the crude oil or the oil product at the initial import point the second is what does that look like when it's actually being uh, used domestically the advantage to europe is even though it's denominated in dollars they get to actually retail it in euros and that's still to their advantage very good. Okay, we're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Dr. Kent Moores. Uh, his new book is called The Vega Factor, Oil Volatility and the Next Global Crisis. And we'll be back after this. It's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Intense and intelligent. Catch Kevin, unscripted and uncensored, keeps you informed of the ideological, theological, and economic war being waged against the United States of America. Kevin Lehman's bold and brilliant style challenges your deepest held beliefs and provokes you to ask the hard questions, religious, scientific, political, or financial. Kevin is holding the establishment's feet to the fire with high-profile guests that include politicians, economists, theologians, and business titans. He'll demand truth over tradition and facts over fiction. Full of passion, wisdom, and wit, Kevin's transparent and no-nonsense style make Catch Kevin unscripted and uncensored. The go-to show for real insight on business, politics, social issues, and breaking news. It's time to get real, America. It's time to tackle the tough issues head on. Tune in to Catch Kevin, unscripted and uncensored, Mondays at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Business Channel. If you are looking for creative ways to improve your bottom line, tune in to Make Your Move with Alan and Brian Bolio. Their proven track record of helping businesses enhance their profitability will provide the basis for a forum about actionable items based on a business person's perspective. The program will be business talk, but with an economic context, so you'll know how to stay ahead of the game. Make Your Move is broadcast live every Monday afternoon at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business channel it's all arizona all over the world if you're a local arizona high school sports fan or if you're a transplanted fan somewhere else in the world have we got a show for you the first internet sports radio talk show focusing solely on high school sports is the coach's corner with scott lovely tune in to talk about your favorite teams players or coaches it's 100 percent arizona high school sports coverage and a little bit more tune in mondays at 4 p.m pacific time 7 p.m. Eastern to the Voice America Sports Channel. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Dr. Kent Moores. Uh, he is a professor at uh, Duquesne University in uh, Pittsburgh of political science. He is also the author of a new book called The Vega Factor, Oil, Volatility, and the Next Global Crisis. Welcome back to the show, Kent. Thank you, Jordan. We're going to talk about this from an investor's point of view now. Uh, with everything we've talked about and all this tremendous volatility in the oil markets, uh, what are some things people should be looking for uh, as far as investing in oil and profiting from what's going on? Well, the volatility has created a great deal of angst in the market. But frankly, volatility like this will generate some incredible profit opportunities. In fact, I tell people that as the volatility gets worse, those individuals who can position themselves correctly on the volatility curve are likely to make more money from this sector than any other sector in the market in their lifetimes. That's the one primary advantage of, of volatility. But it's not a situation where you simply turn the lights off, 
throw darts and invest in whatever the dart ends next to. I tell people currently there are three basic approaches, and this is essentially a where, what, and when kind of approach. We are into a situation where the market is requiring a greater amount of supply of crude oil. Demand is increasing considerably worldwide. OPEC, for the first time in its history, increased uh, global demand projections last year significantly three times. They've done it twice already this year. We have four major reports out saying, unless we get more crude oil onto the market, by 2015 or 2016, we're going to see a real problem. So it's very clear that it's gung-ho in terms of setting up new fields. That being the case, those companies that tend to experience profit first are not the producers. They're the oil field service providers, the OFS market. And when you look at the OFS market, I essentially look at it in two ways. Number one, globally, one moves with, with the like of Schlumberger, uh, simply because it is the largest globally it has the best diversification of its, uh, um, of its field emphasis. The only problem with a Schlumberger is that if you get another Libya, geopolitical impacts tend to affect most that uh, provider that has the biggest uh, um, uh, global position. Having said that, Schlumberger is up about 60% this year. So yep. even with all the difficulties, it's operating just fine. If somebody's a bit concerned about investing in a company that may be exposed to geopolitical impact, then I'd suggest you go with a good uh, North American-only provider of, uh, of oil uh, field services. And for me, that's the basic energy services, BAS. They service uh, about 2,500 clients, and they're all only in the southwestern U.S., and so as a result, uh, the, the geopolitical impact tends not to have as big an impact. Uh, its return isn't going to be as great, but on the other hand, through all of this mess, BAS is still up about 30%. And how about so some of the offshore oil drillers, Noble and Transocean, those kind of companies? Well, Transocean is probably a better buy than it has, than it has been um, you know, for the past six months. But you've got to be careful with RIG, with RIG, uh, because... Enough mud's been thrown around because of the Macondo One blowout, and unfortunately, I think Rig is actually going to end up uh, having to pay some uh, uh, penalties because of that. Well, the real interesting situation there is when the majors start turning around and suing each other. So when BP sues um, Transocean, when BP sues Halliburton, when all of them sue, sue Anadarko and vice versa, that's going to be when we really get to see the shakeout. Um, the need for offshore crude in the overall international mix is exceptional. And so that means the nobles of the world, uh, Transocean, uh, Maersk, uh, the, the companies that tend to provide the, um, the offshore drilling capability in other parts of the world are, are making increasing uh, profit. As we went through this, this difficulty of whether or not we were going to allow deep water drilling in the Gulf of Mexico to move forward, deep water drilling was increasing worldwide, especially off the Asian continent. Okay, so, so we're talking about, we, we just have a limited amount of time. How about some okay. of the big oil companies up in Canada, what used to be the income trusts? Uh, do you like those that are in the tar sands market? Yes, and in fact, the best play there, this is actually part of my second one, uh, uh, second approach here, the best policy there is actually to take uh, an ETF. And, and the ETF is the, uh, is the Guggenheim, it's the Guggenheim Canadian Energy Income ETF, or ENY is the way it trades in New York. This is actually an exchange-traded fund that deals only with unconventional oil sands, oil shale, Canadian producers. So as the price has increased, the, um, uh, any project now in, in, in Canada is profitable. That's no longer a difficulty. If you're above $72 a barrel, anything is profitable. Uh, what we're seeing is as they move from income trust to actually uh, companies that had to provide dividends, some of the companies move to the top quicker than others. The, um, the primary adv advantage there, I think, is to use the ENY as, a, uh, as an introduction to the major 
profitable producers. And then over time, to use that, uh, that ETF as a way of bouncing actual performance of given companies as they move to the fore. One of the advantages and disadvantages in Canada is a lot of this production ends up still being by what are still called Canadian juniors. And Canadian juniors, while they may have well, uh, a real focused approach to their particular local fields, are in some cases as much an object for acquisition by the bigger boys than they are actually to, uh, to preserve their own production moving forward. And if you're an investor, that's fine. Whether they make a profit on their own production or whether you get a bump in your stock value because someone else acquires the company, both of those are plus sides. So that's basically the way I would play Canada. Um, finally, in the United States, my position has been, and it's even more so now than it was a year ago, the Exxon Mobiles and the Chevrons of the world are going to make their money. But the primary pop is going to come from well-managed, well-focused, well-positioned, medium and smaller size extraction and production, or EMP companies. Now, there are a number of companies out there that one could invest in right now. But once again, I would suggest until we actually get all the dust settling here in this very volatile market, go with, with the Wildcat EMP. ETF. This is WCAT, the Wildcatter. This is an exchange-traded fund that invests only in what I consider to be the best structured and the best managed medium and smaller sized uh, producers in the United States. And just to give you an example, even with all the mess we've had over the last uh, couple of months, crude oil prices have increased about 22% this year. YCAT has increased almost 30%. These medium and smaller sized companies have been outperforming the actual increase in the price in oil, which is a good indication of why the profit is going in that direction. Very good. Okay, what's well, been fascinating, my guest this hour has been uh, Dr. Kent Moores. His new book is called The Vega Factor, Oil Volatility and the Next Global Crisis. We appreciate you very much being on The Money Answer Show, Dr. Moores. Thank you, Jordan. I enjoyed it. And we'll be back again with another edition of The Money Answer Show next week. Goodbye for now. Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and The Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week.